Hello and welcome to Love Thy Lawyer, where we talk to real lawyers about their lives in and out of the practice of law, how they got to be lawyers, and what their experience has been. I'm Lewis Goodman, the host of the show, and yes, I'm a lawyer. Nobody's perfect. He graduated from law school with a great deal of academic success. His cum laude law degree earned him an entry into the world of criminal prosecution, but he quickly moved to the defense side of the courtroom. He has used his outstanding litigation skills to fight for civil rights and the constitutional rights of the criminally accused. He is a passionate and zealous advocate on behalf of his clients. His level of preparation is second to none. Ben Zickerman, welcome to Love Thy Lawyer. Thank you so much, Lewis. I'm really looking forward to being here. And uh, I do appreciate the intro. You're making me blush. Where's your office located right now? I'm at Third and Broadway, so I'm about three blocks from Jack London Square, just a uh, cat's corner from the Buttercup Grill. It's uh, a wonder to me I haven't gained about 50 pounds being at this location. How long have you been there? Two and a half years. Where are you from originally? Berkeley, born and raised. And did you go to high school in Berkeley? I did, Berkeley High. How was that experience? You know, it was a very interesting experience. I didn't have, of course, anything to compare it to until... I got to college and got out into the world, and you know, I talk about my high school experience, especially things like ethnic studies, and people from other parts of the country just kind of looked at me funny, like, wait, what were they teaching you there? And it was, you know, it was a very interesting place. It was very diverse, a lot of progressive ideals. You know, I, I thought it to be normal. So after you got out of Berkeley High School, where'd you go to college? In New Orleans. Well, that must have been a big switch. It was. It was a very odd thing for me. When I started applying to schools. I have three older siblings. All of them went to school in New York or somewhere on the East Coast. And I remember thinking, I didn't want to go that far away from home. I applied to schools up and down the the West Coast. I got accepted to read a bunch of schools in Los Angeles. New Orleans was kind of a, a wild card that my high school advisor suggested I might enjoy. And as it turns out, when I visited all of these, all of these schools, that was the one I liked the best. And I, I still... I'm very, very happy and proud to have gone there. So what was that experience like being in New Orleans? It was a very interesting experience. You know, how they tell us in law school, look to your left, look to your right. The attrition rates amongst the uh, freshman class at Tulane were insane. We lost fully a third of our class because these are mostly kids who hadn't gone out and, and partied at all. And then all of a sudden they're in the middle of New Orleans. Most of them couldn't handle it. And a lot of them just didn't come back. The interesting thing about Tulane was that it's not a school that will ever push you. At what point did you start thinking about being a lawyer? You know, I I think that it's not a question of what point it was kind of always there. I come from a legal family uh, in the sense that everyone who raised me is involved in law one way or another. So it was always kind of in the cards for me. But, you know, I wanted to get out there and explore other opportunities and, and think about it. But at a certain point, you know, I, I realized I had a, a, an experience in New York that made me kind of focus on where I wanted to go. And, and law school was it. How long was it between the time you left college and went to law school? Did you take some time off or did you go right I, into law school? I did. I went. So I graduated with two degrees and two minors. I got to New York. It was about the 2001 so we were in the middle of a bit of a recession. I ended up in, in marketing and did not like it at all. I made no inroads into to my journalistic uh, approaches. 
in college, I realized that marketing and advertising was probably more likely for me. But I get into the uh, marketing and advertising world in New York and realized that I just did not enjoy selling people things they did not need. It's a very kind of hollow existence. And so I decided to take some time off and sow my wild oats, and I became a bike messenger in New York. So I did that for two and a half years. And that was, if you want to sell wild oats, that's about as wild as it gets. Tell us a story from the bike messenger days. So in terms of being a bike messenger or how I got into it? You tell me. It's your story. So what happened was after I kind of figured out that advertising and marketing wasn't for me, I got I had a, a friend who was a lead chef at a, a particularly successful restaurant in the meat packing district. It was on a little West 12th Street uh, called Pastis. It was one of Keith McNally's restaurants. They hired me to be a delivery boy. Uh, delivery boys rode bikes. This place was so successful, I got dental for being a delivery boy. Go figure. Anyway, turns out I really enjoyed riding in traffic. It was fast. It was fun. It was serious. You know, and there were there were real consequences. And I really, really enjoyed it. As I branched out uh, and, and got to be a more proficient rider, I started hanging out with people who were moonlighting doing delivery like I was and started doing actual delivery, which is, you know, kind of a counterculture in New York. I'm not sure if it's still there. I haven't been back in a lot of years. But the whole messenger scene was exactly that it was seen. And so I became part of that. And, you know, it's, it's a very exciting, fringe sort of way to live. It's kind of bordering on outlaw behavior. It's always way overly aggressive. But it's a real community. They got shot at and Red Hook once. You know, it was, it was, it's something that I think everyone should do at least once. How did you decide that you were going to leave the bike messenger business and go to law school? Well, as I said, I mean, while as much fun as it was, it was a serious business in the sense that it was very dangerous. And in the space of three months, I saw one friend who was a messenger get very badly hurt. I saw another one get killed, and then I got hit by a cab. I was pretty lucky. I got three pins in my left hand. But it really kind of was time for me to figure out which way to go. And at that point, my other job at the time was I was working at a glass lab in Brooklyn called Urban Glass, uh, glass blowing, glass casting. And it was a question of going to art school, going to law school. Having observed the working artists and the kind of margins they worked off of, I knew that that wasn't for me. And so I started studying for the, for the LSAT. And where did you ultimately go to law school? Pace Law School in New York. So you decided to stay in New York. Yeah. And Pace was, at that point, it's, it's still a relatively young program. I think when I was there, they'd only been doing it for about 15 years. But what was great is that the class size was tiny. Uh, I don't remember ever having a class with more than 40 people in it. And, and and that was by far the biggest draw for me. I got to spend nothing but time with my professors, you know, and, and what I learned in law school is that while you do get to learn contracts and torts and property and all that stuff, you're really learning how to learn. You know, when you step out of law school, you don't have any particular base of knowledge that's actually going to help you practice. But the framework that they teach you is there. And, and I always believed it was essential to watch people who had done it better than you, which is your, you know, your professor. So I found it to be quite a remarkable program just in terms of its closeness and, and the availability of staff to the students. Did you enjoy your experience there at Pace? I really, really did. I had a great time there. I met a lot of very interesting people. You know, most of them were very driven. It wasn't an Ivy League school. So these are people who knew that they weren't just going to get a job based on their degree. You know, they, they all had plans. They were all motivated and that helped motivate me. So when you, when you got out of Pace, what was your first legal job? 
So after I got done with Pace, uh, at that point, my uh, then-girlfriend, now wife, had gotten a good job offer in L.A. So I went to, we decided that was time to relocate. And, you know, I, I, I had always kind of planned to come back to California. And so I was doing freelance jury consultancy and mock trials. And I did a mock trial for a Beverly Hills Title VII firm called Keswick and Silverstein. They did mostly employment law. After the mock trial, they just asked me, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> Do you want to come work for us? I did. You know, I, I worked for them for about two years. It was a very good way to learn about civil practice and kind of what the shape of it is and what the flavor of it is. And after I had kind of absorbed as much as I could, I decided to go on my own way. I then got hired by Bruce Margolin to do criminal defense. That was my first paying criminal defense job. And then after that, I started my own firm, came back to the area. Let me let me just put, put this out there because this is actually a good story from, from law school. So how I got involved in criminal law was, as I told you, I was, I was raised in a legal family. But with the exception of my stepmother, who by the time I met her, she was out of the DA's office and was working for a uh, fireman's fund doing insurance defense. You know, all the exposure I had to law was civil law. And so that's where I, invariably I figured I'd, I'd end up going. So... My second year of law school, second year of law school, my trial lab professor was a, a guy named Joel Seidman. He was a prosecutor, lifelong prosecutor in the Manhattan DA's office, true believer. And I really, really, really enjoyed trial lab. He said, this is the only chance in your life where you're going to get to try to do a bunch of different things. You may have made up your mind that you think civil law is the way to go, but you owe it to yourself to, to expose yourself to some other things before you, you know, put on the golden handcuffs or whatever you think it is. You know, and, and that actually didn't seem wrong. So he helped me get a internship at the Queens District Attorney's Office where I stayed for the rest of law school. It was amazing. I had an amazing time there. It was revelatory to me. You know, the, the pace of it, the, the kind of the passion of all the players involved, the, the judges, the, you know, the DAs, the defense bar. And, you know, the velocity was really something that, that drew me in. Also, one thing I found fascinating, which I've seen in every defense bar since then is the death set humor that goes along with this practice. And and the first time I ever got to see it was in the Queen's DAs and it really stuck with me. Right. And so Queen's DAs was great. It, it changed my whole world around. I have Joel Seidman to thank for that. But it definitely gave me some funny ideas about what prosecutors were coming out of the gate. Is that the courthouse in Jamaica? Yeah. 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 Uh, it's over there off of Sutton. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I know it. They used to send me out to do uh, uh, scene surveys, and they give me body armor to do it. It was pretty exciting. What sort of things do you really like about practicing law? You, when I when I talk to you, when I see you, you always strike me as someone who just you know kind of really relishes being in court and really doing the work. Well, there's there's a lot of parts of that one, and this is something that I was talking about a little bit that I I, I kind of started learning about at the Queen's CA is you know I love the pace. The, the, the pace of criminal laws is you know, necessarily very, very quick. So I love that sort of frenetic nature of it. I also love you know being on your feet, that so much of it is you can must and you should prepare a lot, but a lot of it is your presentation while you're on your feet, knowing your judges, knowing your DAs, if you're in front of a jury, you know, matching their expectations. And so I like that kind of on-the-spotness about it. But also what I really like is that criminal law, to a certain extent, it rewards people who are willing to look at things differently. If you can really absorb the, 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 the case law on a specific issue and try to take it to that next step, you aren't punished the way you might be in, in a civil case for overreaching. 
you know, the organic growth of jurisprudence is very much so rewarded. And I really like that because there's all these opportunities to be creative in your defense. Now, of course, you want to bounce that off of other people to make sure you're not going too far off the end into goofball land. But at the same time, I think that we all have the ability to push the envelope and that that can be rewarded. Would you recommend it to a young person as a career choice who's just coming out of college? Criminal law or being a lawyer? Well, let's start with being a lawyer and then let's get down to criminal law. It really depends on kind of what their expectations for their life are. If they're just in it to make money, then, you know, lawyering is a good avenue for that, but there's always a question of what's left. I had a couple of friends who went the, the corporate law route and ended up at Skadden and Mofo. And, you know, spiritually, it's a very destructive process working in places like that. And at the end of the day, you know, the chase to the top is usually all that remains and all you can think of is in terms of billables. And that's not great, but you will make the money. If you are willing to do the work and you are invested in doing something that matters, but also realize you will very rarely be thanked for it, then I think it's a good career. But that takes a certain type. How is actually practicing met or differed from your expectations? The one thing that's been really hard for me is, is running a practice. The actual practicing, I'm, I'm quite comfortable with. But running a business is nothing I've ever had any training in. It's nothing that I feel like I'm terribly good at. You know, I, I've got enough to keep the lights on and, and, and keep my business moving. But the wearing two hats is something that was very surprising to me and something that I'm not terribly well suited at, that I've done well enough that I have my ticket to ride and keep going to court. But the actual business end of it is, is something that was surprising to me and, and somewhat alien. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way. You know, I... When I came out of the DA's office and opened my own practice, I really found out early on the business aspect of it takes almost as much time as the law aspect of it. Oh, yeah. So and, and, and you think about it. I mean, we're trained to have these intellectual and analytic abilities within a certain framework. We're trained to get answers out of people that they, they don't want to give. We are not trained to do spreadsheets. We're not trained to do marketing. We're not trained to do a lot of shameless self-promotion, which is all these things are required to, to, to run the business. Hey, tell me about a case that really went well for you, where you think that, you know, came out the way you wanted. Oh, there was this, this great case out of San Francisco that I had where my client was Middle Eastern. He was sitting in his car, minding his own business. Two San Francisco cops come up and it's clearly a, a racially motivated detention. And they start kind of going back and forth with him and talking to him. And, you know, he wasn't doing anything. He was sitting in a legally parked spot on his phone in his car. And they kind of knocked on the window and gave him the, what are you doing here, boy? Is that alcohol we smell? So it turns into a DUI. I basically uh, string the Superior Court case along until I could get as many people into the DMV to testify as was possible, right? So I get the cops come in. What he said was nonsense. I get a security guard who saw the whole thing you know, talk about how he hadn't been doing anything and that these cops were, you know, harassing him for no reason. And then I got a video to back it up. So I start kind of dumping all of that on the DAs and they're hemming and hawing and doing this and doing that. Then I bring a pitches motion. Before the pitches motion could be heard, the DAs agreed to dismiss and give me a Hellman dollar. That one felt really good. Yeah, that is a good result. Yeah. Um, that, was, that was one of those great cases where it really felt like the right thing happened. What's the best advice that you've ever received? The best advice 
and I remember, I believe it was my property law professor who said, be very aware of what you don't know. And I think that that's the most important thing in our practice is that, you know, there's so much case law. You can know the broad strokes of every type of criminal case, but you can't know the, the nitty gritty. The most important thing is knowing what you don't know because then you can fill in those gaps for that case. If you can't recognize the areas that you don't have uh, proper knowledge in, then it's a blind spot. You'll never pick it up. So be very cognizant of what you don't know. I think that that's very good advice. What, if anything, would you change about the way the legal system works? You know what I would change is I would change the state. And what I mean by that, and this is something, a conversation I often have with clients, they're talking about going to trial or I'm talking to them about going to trial, is that they have to understand that DAs have nothing to lose if they take a case to trial and don't win. But the fact that the exposure and the, the potential ramifications are so lopsided has always struck me as, as a tremendous imbalance and, and something that makes the practice very hard, especially emotionally for our clients. Do you think the system's fair? Boy, how much time you got? Look, <laughs> I, I, I kind of take the, the, the Churchill approach to the legal system in America. It's the worst system of law except for all the others. And the bottom line is, is that, do I think it's fair? I think it has fair ideals. I think it strives to be fair. I think in practice, there are too many factors that come into play in terms of people's prejudices, in terms of cultural decisions at DA's office, you know, judges making decisions that they may not realize are based in something other than the fact for it to truly be fair. But then the question becomes, what's the alternative? And again, that loops back around to it's the worst system except for all the others. I think it's as good as it gets. Could it be better? Sure. But I do think that aspirationally it's fair. In practice, on the ground, not all the time for sure. What's your family life like? How is you know mixing your practice of law and your living with your family personal situation? How's that, how's that been for you? Well, that's actually been something that's been evolving a lot in the last two years. Prior to then, you know, my work was everything. I was married. My wife, she has her own business. We both just worked and worked and worked. It's sort of what we did. And of course, we had time together, but our, our primary focus was always on our work. And that all changed two years ago. We had a baby. I have a, a two, year, two and three quarter year old son. And for the first time, there was something that was as important, if not more so, than my work. And so I'm still working on how to juggle my priorities. And, and, you know, it's, it's forced me to do a number of things, you know, really potentially schedule around weekends at all costs, not come in because that's the you know consistent family time we have. You know, I've had to learn to work from home, which is horrible. I hate working from home, but that's, you know, what you have to do, you know, but I'm still trying to figure out the balance. I mean, with the world on hold and everyone working from home right now, the silver lining is I haven't gotten to spend that much time with my boy since he was born. So I wish I had a good answer, and I wish I could tell you I'd, I'd mastered this particular aspect of, of work life, but I'm, I'm still working my way through it. What sort of recreational things do you enjoy doing? Well, I've got two kind of hobbies. One is uh, glass blowing. So I built a small glass blowing lab in my house. I make mostly marbles are my favorite. I, I, I love marbles. The optical qualities of them are just somewhat otherworldly, and you can get lost staring at them if you make them right. And so... That's one thing I do. The other thing, and what I really like about glassworks, besides the final product being this kind of very remarkable thing, is that it's singular in the sense that if you're painting or taking pictures, you can split your attention and you might ruin the piece, but nothing bad's going to happen to you. 
the working temperature of Pyrex, uh, Pyrex glass is 2,400 degrees. You split your attention, you're going to have third degree burns before you even feel them. And so I do like in that particular art form that you really have to give it 100% of your focus or it'll bite you. And it's a, it's a really great opportunity to kind of shut the rest of the world out and just be thinking about one thing. Because you know that as practitioners with our own offices, you're thinking about a thousand things at once. It's the one time when all of that goes quiet by necessity. And, and I really like that. Uh, the other thing I do is I do track days, which is, you know, amateur racing. And that's a lot of fun. Likewise, that's a very kind of singular thing. It's, it's you, your car, and the track, and the person in front of you, and the person behind you. And coincidentally, it's a really good social distancing sport. Go figure. So tuning my car and taking it to the track, that's a, another thing I really enjoy doing. How about any travel experience? You've been any place interesting? Uh, yeah, I've been to, let me see, I've been to Indonesia, I've been to Japan, I've been to Europe. I think those places are pretty interesting. Now, most interestingly, in the last couple trips, you we were talking about work-life balance. It took my wife six years to convince me that I could leave for a week and a half and that my business wouldn't shut down. So we've only really recently started doing kind of travels and then the baby came. But we've been to, uh, we went to London, we went uh, all over Japan. And interestingly enough, one of my kind of pastimes on these trips, I always go to criminal court just to see how they do things. And that's always been fascinating. I had a judge make fun of me in Tokyo about it. What sort of things keep you up at night? In the last year or in general? <laughs> well, let's talk about the last year. Well, let me see. Global pandemic, uh, social implosion, you know, complete degeneration of the social contract and reality, political upheaval. You know, those are, those are things that will keep you up. But, you know, in general, the things that keep me up is I, I tend to wake up and start thinking about my cases. And then I start, you know, just sort of kind of going back and forth, and that keeps me up. Unfortunately, I'll either think of things that need to be done in the case or new theories on the case, and, and that makes it very hard for me to sleep, beyond all the horrible things that happened in 2020. Let's say you came into some real money, a few billion dollars. What, if anything, mm-hmm. would you do differently in your life? Well, I, I still think I'd practice, but I would be able to take cases where people could, you know, regularly take cases where people couldn't afford it. So I, I, you know, have a much smaller caseload, but I think I would be screening them with the idea of people who really need help that I could help with, but couldn't necessarily afford my services. I'd also, <laughs> and this is sort of a bucket list thing, and I think it's completely unrealistic, but I'd also like to build live steam locomotives. I don't know anything about it. I know basic metalworking, but that's always something I've wanted to do. So if I had a ton of money, I would have a small caseload and, and learn how to fabricate. Let's say you had a magic wand. You could change one thing in the world, the legal system or just the world in general, anything. What, what, what do you think that would be? I think that if I had my magic wand, that you know, my overall goal would be to kind of increase the level of empathy that exists in our world. So, Ben, earlier you talked about some of the humor that you began to see when you first started working in the Queen's district attorney's office and that same kind of humor going over into the defense bar once you got there. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I, I think it's, it's really something that's very unique to criminal defense. A lot of times the subject matter, be it from you know the view of a prosecutor or of a defense counsel, sometimes it can be pretty awful stuff. And so I think that that is a safety valve for all of our sanity. But you know, that, that's something that really drew me in and it's something that I've seen be present in every defense bar I've ever come into contact with. And I think that, that that builds a sense of community, which is something I really like. Ben Zickerman, thank you very much. 
for talking to me today on the Love Thy Lawyer podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me, and I really enjoyed it as well. That's it for today's episode of Love Thy Lawyer. Many thanks to my guests who have contributed their time and wisdom and make this show possible. Thanks, as always, to Joel Katz for music, Brian Matheson for technical support, and Tracy Harvey. I'm Lewis Goodman. And so I became part of that. And, you know, it's, it's a very exciting, fringe sort of way to live. It's kind of bordering on outlaw behavior. It's always way overly aggressive.